This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. To learn more or to subscribe, visit beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. It's episode 316 of the Craft Beer Brewing Podcast, and for this episode, I'm continuing my road trips around the West. Uh, I don't know what I got the bug this year to go hit some road trips, so I went out to Salt Lake City, went down to Colorado Springs. Now, I drove north. I'm up in Billings, Montana, and joining me for this episode of the podcast is my good friend and old friend now, Mark Hastings of uh, Uber Brew, and by all means, welcome to the podcast, Mark. Thanks for having me. I'm super excited to have you in Billings. Been wanting you to come up for a long time, so thanks for making the trip. I think we've talked about doing this for years and years, and you know, either the circumstances were right or like you know, I just I always wanted to come up and see it. And I've actually, I don't think, I mean, I haven't been to Mon- the state of Montana. I've only was in the state of Montana once, and it was 25 years ago, and it was on a Yellowstone trip, you know. Um, and I just have never. I, yeah, it's kind of nice to to hop up 25 north all the way up here. Beautiful, beautiful country. Um, and here we are. Yeah. Uh, I used to see a lot more when we'd traveled to Colorado more, but, uh, I haven't been doing as much. So that's true. There was a point where you were doing a little bit of contract brewing down in Fort Collins. And so you'd come yep. down and, uh, we'd hang out and get some beers when you were in town. And, uh, uh, anyway, it's when I get here to buy all means, it is, uh, an impressive thing that you guys have been, uh, you've built out here. Uh, and it's great to see it in person. It's a beautiful, beautiful brewery, brew pub. Yeah, thank you. We took a lot of time and planned it, and it's nice to finally see it uh, going. I guess we're about almost four years in. Yeah. And so by all means, an Uber brew are, uh, you know, sisters or uh, yep. or brothers or cousins or however you want to define the familial relationship, the, the Uber brew beer is now brewed here in the by all means brew house. Yes. And, uh, and so it's kind of a unified approach. Yeah. Uh, maybe four months, six months before COVID, we brought uh, Uber Brew production home to Montana and started making it all here by all means. Uh, you know, 200 barrel batches were a bit large for our distribution. And so, you know, we're doing white noise and 60 barrel batches and it's about the perfect size for us. Makes a lot of sense. For those that are not familiar Uber Brew, 11 GABF medals, five of those are gold. Um, in particular, you've got just some uh, perennial winners, <laughs> medal winners. The White Noise American Wheat Beer, World Beer Cup Silver in 2014, GABF Gold in 2016, GABF Silver in 2021, GABF Gold last year in 2022 um, for an American Wheat Beer. We are absolutely going to talk about that on the podcast today. And then... On the other side of the coin, your Alpha Force Double Tap Black IPA, um, one under a different name, GABF Silver in 2014, one Alpha King in 2015. And to my knowledge, that might be the only black IPA that's ever won Alpha King. Kind of cool. GABF Bronze in 2016, and then back-to-back GABF Golds in 2018 and 19. Um, you've got some like franchise beers here, Mark, um, and are doing some – Amazing and consistently amazing stuff with some of those things. 
We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about uh, you know some of the other things that you've done, even shifting to using more Montana-grown malt in the way that you brew these things, including in that white noise, American wheat beer. Before we do that, G&D Chillers, the brewing industry's premier choice for glycol chilling, are proud of the cool partnerships they've built over the past 30 years. G&D Chillers has set the standard on quality, service, and reliability with 24-7 service and support. We want to maximize efficiency in your chiller. G&D's microchannel condensers are designed for less power draw. Their lighter weight, more compact design uses up to 70% less refrigerant, which means they lower GWP and lower operating costs. Reach out for a quote today at gdchillers.com or call to discuss your next project. Also, support for this episode comes from BSG, looking for a sustainable way to increase fermenter capacity. Try FirmCap Eco from Cary. Developed as part of Cary's Eco Brewing Range, FirmCap Eco is a plant-based alternative to traditional silicone-based products. FirmCap Eco increases fermenter capacity by reducing foam height to improve beer foam stability and enhance hop utilization. Visit bsgcraftbrewing.com or contact your BSG sales rep to get started. And is your brewery making its own ciders, seltzers, and other beverages beyond beer? If you need a central source for fruit flavor... Old Orchard has you covered. Old Orchard supplies flavored craft juice concentrate blends to beverage brands for the production of beer, cider, seltzer, wine, spirits, kombucha, and more. Flavor your lineup and streamline your sourcing by heading on over to oldorchard.com slash brewer. And just before we started this, Mark was mentioning they've got some Old Orchard stuff in the tank right now that they are uh, trying out. Um, kind of fun to, to see how that experimentation goes. Yeah, we're centrifuging a beer with that product in it, and we're super excited about it. Heard about it right here on your podcast, so we're excited to try it. I appreciate that. appreciate that. So, Mark, give me uh, give me your brewing story. That's how we normally kick these things off. What's that arc through brewing that you have followed? Um, because you've been doing this for a lot of years now. Yeah, uh, professionally since 94, a um, couple years of home brewing before that. And um, so I did some coursework at UC Davis and uh, followed Todd Scott around Spanish Peaks in Bozeman on uh, spring breaks and weekends and picked up as much as I could and uh, got my first job at Montana Brewing Company in 94. Montana Brewing Company was going to be a black dog ale house and uh, the partners didn't quite see eye to eye. And so um, the remaining partners opened Montana Brewing Company. And with that relationship with Spanish Peaks, my name got passed on. So I started as an assistant brewer there. And uh, by 90, late 95, I was the head brewer. And uh, I think in 96, um, we brought on an assistant brewer, 98, we started winning some awards. And, uh, so I was there for a little while, went to work for another Montana brewery called sleeping giant, not the sleeping giant that we've worked with in Colorado, but, uh, um, worked with them, went back to Montana brewing company and, uh, took a little hiatus, managed some restaurants while we wrote the business plan for Uber brew. And so Uber brew is about 11 years old. And, uh, that's kind of my passion project. That's what I was striving to do when I was a home brewer, like all home brewers, and and uh, finally got to do it. And by all means, it's just kind of an expansion of all that. It's uh, like you said, a sibling brewery to the Uber Brew brand, and so um, super excited to be doing both projects. When, so '94 was when it all yeah. started. OG, OG. Um, so when as you, you came up with this idea, 
you know, worked on this plan for Uber Brew, what was the idea, you know? Uh, and then of course with By All Means, which is kind of a, I think in a, a similar kind of progressive forward looking beer vein. Um, and I should, we should couch this by saying, you know, I was in Montana Brewing Company last night. They are a very classic focused, uh, uh craft brewery. There was some of those beers feel like I was back in the nineties drinking craft beer. Um, cause I started drinking craft beer in yeah, 1995 and though that was that just what is kind of what it felt like. Um, by all means, an Uber brew are a different approach to brewing and a more, um, you know, maybe something more modern focused in, in a lot of ways, you know, but what was it about, uh, you know, you know, as you were trying to formulate these ideas behind Uber brew and then by all means, what, uh, you know, what talk to me about the driving kind of, you know, creative vision for them. Yeah. Back in the nineties, brewers were emulating old world styles and, and, uh, you know, maybe the newness was just adding more hops and, and North American varieties. But for the most part, we were trying to emulate, you know, English bitters and pale ales. And, um, in a lot of ways, that's still the market here in, in Billings, Montana. There's but, a lot of Scottish ale, yeah. you know, amber ale and other stuff. Uh, you got to make a menus. good scotch or Scottish in Montana for sure. Um, but we wanted to take it beyond that. We wanted to, uh, experiment a little bit and, um, you know, I don't know how much we were involved, but there's definitely a period of time when the European brewers started emulating North American beer, um, especially hoppy styles, IPA and, and, uh, you know, so inspiration for us was coming out of California and, and, uh, eventually Colorado. Um, but, uh, you know, we, we think the mountain States was maybe led a little bit in IPA by, uh, by, uh, Montana. And, uh, we think there's a, a real similarity amongst IPA in the mountain States. And we think it's different than West coast, East coast, hazy, um, Pacific Northwest. But, uh, you know, we, we call it Rocky mountain IPA and we wanted to be part of that. Um, and, and, and I think that's kind of where IPA still is in, in Montana, but, uh, Uber brew came because in 11 years ago, everybody was naming their brewery after something geological or geographical. Um, a lot of fuzzy mammal names, a lot of rivers and mountain peaks, and we wanted to do something a little different. So Uber brew for us was kind of our business plan or our vision uh, our mission statement in a name. And so we were looking to make superlative beer. So, uh, Uber being a superlative example of its class or kind and, uh, beer being the, the, or brew being the fermented beverage. Um, we wanted a name that would go beyond Billings, Montana. And, uh, we wanted it to maybe have meaning, um, outside of the state or at least outside of Billings. And so that was the plan. And we wanted beer to kind of go with it. We wanted beer to be something beyond what the 1990s was. If you didn't win awards, then the then the brand wouldn't. Uh, right. I mean, it's kind of in the way that you've set up the entire brand name. If it if it uh, doesn't get that kind of recognition, then it's not living up to the brand. It was it was setting a high bar for yourself that way. Yeah. If you look at what Uber Brew means here in Billings, Montana, we're known more for the the tap room, the food. Um, you know, it was those awards 
and uh, meeting brewers outside of our market uh, where we kind of became known for the beer. And so, with like you say, without meeting um, beer, passionate beer people that were looking for beer outside of um, what the 1990s brought, yeah, people probably wouldn't know about Uber Brew. At the same time, I think that the same dynamic happens, you know, and this Billings isn't a small town. It's 110,000 population, um, the largest city in Montana, um, you know, but it still feels insular. I mean, it's still a long drive to anywhere else, you know, from here, you know, you're still a couple hours just from Sheridan, Wyoming, and you know, not to mention most other places in the country, you know, and but the way that a local market looks at you when you come back with national accolades um, is extra special in a place like this where people don't think about, you know, special things that happen on a world stage, you know, as being right here and available to them in their backyard. Yeah. And, you know, we've been doing it before Uber Brew. So, you know, you were at Montana Brewing last night. Yeah, you, you probably, probably saw yeah. all those awards on the wall. Um, you know, those were all predecessors to White Noise and, and some of the beer we're doing today. And so, Montana is for a small population, yeah. a small state, has a lot of World Beer Cup and a lot of uh, GABF awards, and a lot of more than any other town in Montana. They're right here in Billings, Montana. So a lot of people we've worked with over the years have helped bring some of those to Billings. Interestingly enough, it's the smaller population of Wyoming relative to the number of breweries that make it one of the most have the state has the mo one of the most uh, Montana and Vermont of the most breweries per capita right of any states in the country so there are more breweries per capita here in Montana than there are you know in any other state other than maybe Vermont um you know people are definitely drinking craft beer here there is plenty for people to drink um you know of course you then in, went and started winning awards for a black IPA, a style that uh, no matter how many awards you win is still going to be somewhat focused, um, you know, in the audience for that. And so I want to like kick things off and talk about, you know, how you approach that taking in some of this West coast hop idea, um, you know, melding that with, uh, you know, your own palate and being able to formulate this idea for, for a black IPA that also, um, sculpturally conveys, you know, this hop idea. Before we do that, AccuBrew now monitors specific gravity to ensure consistent results and detect problems before they ruin a batch. The AccuBrew system is designed to give you unprecedented insight into the fermentation process. Monitor gravity, fermentation activity, clarity and temperature, schedule reminders, and receive alerts anywhere, anytime. AccuBrew's CIP ready device is designed to stay out of your way. They know your time and space is precious and they take up as little of both as possible. No more samples, no cleaning, and no calibration. Set it and forget it. To learn more about AccuBrew, head on over to AccuBrew.io. Also, brewing is currently one of the most innovative, adaptive, and fast-paced industries in the world. With consumer demand shifting to the latest and greatest trend, it can be difficult for production teams to keep up with requirements. The ProFill series of rotary can fillers from ProBrew are accelerating plant production everywhere. These can fillers run at speeds between 100 and 600 plus cans per minute while achieving precise and consistent filling volumes not achievable by most inline and mobile fillers. For more information, visit www.probrew.com or email contact us at probrew.com to learn exactly how they can take your operations to the next level. Probrew, brew your beer. And elevate your brewing game with RMS Roller Grinder. 
Their industry-leading mills deliver optimal grind consistency, unlocking the full potential of your grain. Say goodbye to uneven grinds and hello to exceptional flavor extraction. Brew pub or production facility, RMS has the expertise in grain handling equipment to meet your needs. Visit rmsroller-grinder.com to discover how RMS can transform your brewing experience. Unleash the full potential of your grains with RMS Roller Grinder, the trusted choice for brewers worldwide. So let's talk about Black IPA, Mark. It's not a subject we talk about much here on the podcast, um, but it is one of those things that, again, even though I might have it in my mind that it's not you know, a beer that I'm going to order as often, Every time I have it, or every time I, you know, say get a Firestone Walker Wookie Jack, uh, I come back to it, I was like, God, I really do love black, well made black IPA. And I think in this kind of current and modern environment, uh, you all have figured out a way to smooth out that hops character, blend it in, you know, with this, uh, you know, this kind of darker malt base. So talk me through this beer. You know, as you thinking about designing black IPA, you know, what is, where does your creative process start on that? So the idea was very early on in, in, uh, Uber Bruce, uh, startup phases. And, you know, back then the discussion was, what do you call this beer? It was, was it black IPA? Was it Cascadian? And, you know, we, we like those debates and, you know, for us, it's not Cascadian because we're in Montana. Um, we understand that, you know, how Yellowstonian dark ale, right. How can something be pale and, and black at the same time? So, um, that just piqued our interest, that debate. And, you know, there were some good ones. Um, so there's a couple shout outs that I have to give to people, um, that inspired us and, and helped us bring that beer to fruition. And, uh, first of all, it's Mike Urich at Carter's here in, in Billings, Montana. So we were, down at GABF before Uber Brew opened, and he won a silver medal with his Cascadian and uh, excellent beer. And so we were excited about the style. Um, and then, of course, you mentioned Wookie Jack, and that was uh, kind of coming to prominence right around the time Uber Brew opened. And so that got our attention. But it was really um, Mitch Steele writing about Jeff Bagby making one at Pizza Port where he essentially was making an IPA and uh, using uh, malt-based colorants, specifically Cinnamar, to make something. And so, you know, we've made it all different ways. And uh, the first one we made was uh, Black Hops. And uh, that was made with all uh, dark grains. And, uh, you know, we did a lot of... Um, dark grains just before louder, just sparging um, to minimize the flavor impact. So we've always kind of tried to make it taste as much like an IPA as possible, um, but have that visual impact. And you're never going to get away from darker flavors, even using something like Cinnamar. But uh, that's what started the evolution. And, and, um, you know, we were really getting into IPA, and this was just another IPA style. We were making white IPA with, you know, Belgian spices, and we were making Belgian IPAs. Um, so we were just trying to experiment with all IPAs. And, I, I remember those years. Yeah. You know, uh, 14, <laughs> Green 15. Green Clash. Yeah, and, yeah. Yeah. So. 13, 14, yeah. 
But this one stuck out and it was one that we knew was one of the better beers we'd ever made. And uh, so we stuck with it. And there wasn't a ton of a market for it back then. Um, there's getting to be more of a market in, in Billings. You know, we heard in Colorado when we started winning with uh, Alpha Force Double Tap that there wasn't much of a market there. But whenever we took it, people enjoyed the beer. And uh, so we just we decided to start entering it in some competitions. You're using dark malt, but then really just as a visual component or in a very small flavor kind of way. What's the bulk of, of a base malt for a black IPA these days for you? So I think every beer for us starts with base malt and especially IPA, um, whether it be double IPA, whether it be double black IPA. Um, and we were always using uh, floor malted Maris Otter. Um, we were always using low protein malts. So it was either Maris Otter or Golden Promise for us back then. And it's, it's changed recently. Just for that nice flavor character. It, it, it's a base, fullness. it's a base to layer hops on. Yeah. And, uh, you know, back then a lot of people were using wheat malt in IPA. They were using, uh, um, Munich malt and IPA. And those didn't quite make sense to us, um, for what they were trying to achieve. And so we were just looking for a, a somewhat, uh, full-bodied character but we were also looking for a beer when you were doing big double ipas you wanted your louder to be decent so low low protein malts made a lot of sense to us um with black ipa you want something clear because if there's a haze associated with it it can look kind of muddied and not visually appealing so um we were looking to a have a nice louder and b we didn't have filtration or centrifugation at Uber Brew then, so we were fining everything. And uh, we wanted a clear beer in a reasonable amount of time. So low-protein malts was the direction we were going. And then that's evolved then as of late? So we still target low-protein malts, but sometimes for different reasons. Um, we think you can achieve um, some stable hazes with low-protein malts in big hoppy beers. So, um, you know, different findings, is it centrifuged, which we can do now, uh, with the by all means facility, is it fined? What kind of findings are you using and what's your goal? Are you looking for a nice permanent haze? And, and so we kind of found that you can make real stale, stable, hazy beers with a low protein malt with a lot of hops. And, uh, the idea is that, you know, Proteins are going to bind to polyphenols and make a, a particle large enough that you can find it out. Um, but if that protein's not there, um, there's nothing to uh, to bring those proteins and polyphenols together. So you can get a nice stable haze for hazy beers. So when we say that our IPA starts with malt, it does for almost every IPA style we brew. And we think a lot about what's the final... Uh, product going to have? Are we looking for haze? Are we looking for clear? And we'll choose malt accordingly. But uh, for us, it's almost always a low protein malt. So I'm talking uh, less than 11.5 on protein, you know, and as low as 9.2 for some of the uh, European malts. Um, but we're getting 
great malts like that out of Montana now. So we're starting to source some of that stuff locally. Tell me more about that. That's uh, that's interesting, you know, that, uh, I mean, because here Montana is such a big grain growing state, you know, but without a maltster prepping that, like prepping malt for the way that you as a craft brewer want to use it, you know, it may not give you exactly what you're looking for, but you've started to find that and find malt and the kind of quality that you're looking for. Absolutely. That's exactly it. We have always wanted to use Montana uh, grain, um, you know, since the nineties, but, uh, everything was bred, grown and malted for the large multinationals either in here in the Yellowstone Valley Coors and AB InBev grow and, uh, world-class barley, but it's bred, grown and malted for a different brew house and a different type of beer than what we make, you know, at Uber brew, it's single step infusion mashes. And that's part of the reason we like low protein. Um, but we're also looking for flavor. And so you're starting to see Montana with uh, MSU. We're starting to breed and grow and malt with some of the small-scale maltsters for flavor and aroma and, and uh, brew house performance and less about agronomy and, and yield. And, and uh, so because of those small-scale maltsters, we finally have uh, malt that's bread grown and, and uh, malted here in Montana that I think competes with, you know, the Wiremans and the Simpsons and the Crisps of the world. And so we're using more and more of it. And we're getting the barleys that we want as a great base malt for an IPA or a black IPA. Now, you mentioned the, the silo out there is a uh, Montana craft Pilsner malt. Uh, does that play a bigger role in your IPAs now? I mean, you also have super sacks of, of pale malt and, you know, can switch these things up, you know, but how, how much has, you know, has that kind of base malt shifted, you know, because I mean, these days in the IPA world, there's lots of brewers now, uh, have seen the, seen the light literally and figuratively, um, and using Pilsner malt as, as a bigger base for some of these beers. Yeah, so um, we started lightening up IPAs early on in at Uber Brew, and you know, so that was getting into maybe a little away from Maris Otter, which we started with, and more into Golden Promise. But uh, we would use some some Wireman pills for some of our IPAs, and and uh, really liked the outcome. And so we've continued that. We still do that. So we just brewed a a big double. Um, you know, we've been thinking about uh, thialized yeast and 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 uh, phantasms for about a year now for us, and it's been around longer than that. But we planned yesterday's brew for about a year and and execute, and we used all Pilsner malt for that. So, um, the companies that we're buying malt from here in Montana is Montana Craft Malt out of Butte and Gallatin Valley Malting out of Manhattan, Montana. Um, and we started using them about four, almost five years ago now. And, uh, it's because the quality of their malt is there. Um, and they're making low protein malts like we want to use, but the aroma and the, uh, um, the flavor out of this world, big, bold flavors, uh, low protein. So we have the brew house performance we want. Um, we can play with haze and get either a clear beer or a permanent haze out of it. And, uh, 
we just like what they're doing. So it's been a quest of mine since the 90s to use Montana barley. And there were upstarts that didn't make it for water rights reasons and lots of different things. But uh, I think that the number one factor that brought Montana grown malt to market in a way that we liked it was small scale equipment that these growers um, could malt it themselves. So you look at Carl and June DeJong at uh, at Gallatin Valley, they're, uh, they've been growing seed barley for Coors forever. So uh, their main crop is seed potatoes. So everything they grow is pure, pure enough that it can be seed barley for Coors or, or seed potatoes. But they have small-scale equipment now that they can practice their craft on, and their malt is dynamite great base for hoppy beers how you know how much uh have you worked with those monsters to get the specs of the malt that they make you know and communicate what you need for it as a brewer you know because there's always the uh, you know they're trying to they need to sell to a lot of different customers and they need to you know they, they need to make malt in batches they're going to be far larger than just what you're going to buy from them um, you know, so figuring out what that, what those specs are that they need to hit to make it attractive to you as a brewer, you know, has to be some sort of conversation, huh? That, that was the big thing is the small guys just reached out to brewers and said, what do you look for in malt? And then they went and figured out how to bring that to a product and then bring that product to market. So, you know, they worked a lot with MSU and, um, Maltsters before that and and growers before that were kind of they were asking the big guys what they wanted they weren't asking craft what they wanted so um you know they were bringing great uh moravian and uh harrington varieties to coors and they were bringing abm bevs b1202s and in those varieties um and figuring out how to grow them and grow a lot of them uh, but they weren't asking craft what they wanted from all. And I'd say, I don't know, five, seven years ago, that kind of switched. And the Montana people were great. And, you know, Proximity did a good job, too. We we really liked some of the, the genie coming out of uh, Colorado and, and uh, used a little bit of that for a while. But then the Montana guys came on, and we get to say local now. So. <laughs> How much does the barley variety, which you're you're now talking about when you mentioned things like LCS Genie um, and these you know specific barley varieties, because all of the you know those major brewers, you know, Coors has their own barley varieties, ABN Vev has specific barley varieties that they you know use. You know how how much uh, you know variation and difference do you as a brewer sense between the barley variety that's going, uh, you know, that's grown itself, you know, and then, I mean, I'm, I, it's hard to tease these things out, right? Because you've got the variety of the barley, but that's, you know, if you look at a hops, you know, metaphor, it's like, okay, well, I've, I've got Citra, but is it Idaho grown or is it, you know, Washington grown or is it Oregon grown? And then from where, like, there's also the terroir impacts, yeah. you know, that impact that on top of the variety and then on you, you go into, you know, the process of the maltster on top of all of those things um, that can, you know, move that in other directions too. So, you know, in, in terms of 
uh, barley variety. You know, talk. You know, you've spent a lot of time around this. You know, how much variation do you sense from these things? So, you know, that was questions I had early on. Why can't we just bring Marisot and grow it in Montana? And, um, you know, the soil here and the the growing condition, A, we're more continental European type growing here in Montana. We're not the the coastal uh, growing like you'd see in the UK, but... Marisotter doesn't like the rocky soils we have here in Montana. And and so that's kind of what I found out is you may like a variety, but there's a lot more to it than just the variety. It's will it grow where you want it to grow? Can you uh, bring it to harvest? And then malting it can, can be a problem too because it grows differently. So what we're finding out is that agronomy is important, um, but then it's convincing the maltster to make that variety the way you want it. And so, you know, you can co- control protein in the field with, with moisture and that sort of thing. Um, and, uh, you know, you can work on dry land varieties and, and that, but, um, it's got to grow for them to malt it. But from a brewer's perspective, the important part is what does that maltster do with it then once they have it? So if they start with a low protein malt, they still have to to malt it in a way that is going to make sense for what you're trying to do as a brewer. And that was the big change is, you know, Montana Craft Malt and um, Proximity and Gallatin Valley. Those guys started listening to what Craft wants. And, and now the, the barley geneticists are starting to think about flavor and aroma when they're breeding and less about what's the yield of this going to be or can it be a dry land variety and so um you know we knew it was going to happen once craft got big enough and a big enough part of the market that they had to listen to that uh consumer and we're finally there and it's pretty exciting uh, so less about variety, yeah. more about what are the maltsters doing and, and listening to craft. Right. That variety kind of tunes into what grows well in any given place. And then uh, and it's up to the maltsters to – and the, the farming and then the maltster to, you know, to make the ab. Let's, let's go back to black IPA, um, you know, because we've, we've drifted off of that subject. Um, you know, as you, you, you then build a, you know – uh, and I should say, this is still only a beer you brew once or twice a year. It's not like a you know a, a constant uh, mainstay, you know, in your stable as you're brewing. And so these things can change from year to year as you have new ideas and like, hey, let's try this. And and so um, the process of evolution of this is is slow, but it also uh, you know um, you know lets us track some of those changes. You know, as as you now brew black IPA, you know, what forms the most of your base malt? And then how do you kind of layer in those darker malts on top of that? Yeah. So we'll make a decision on the base malt and, um, more and more, it can be a a Pilsner type malt. Um, if we, if we do a Pilsner malt, we still kind of bridge the gap. And so what I mean by that is we'll use Vienna. Um, and so we're using Vienna from uh, Gallatin Valley malting. And I think Vienna is maybe the closest, um, continental European inspired malt that is close to say a, a Marisotter or something along those lines. Um, 
So we're still trying to make sure there's not a huge cliff to drop off in flavor. We're still trying to build that base. And so if we'll use Pilsner, generally we'll bring in a little bit of Vienna malt mm. um, to help build that base. And it's not making it completely a Maris Otter-based um, beer, but... Uh, it's meant to to mimic a little bit of that. So, you know, I think you could do a blend of Pilsner malt and uh, something like Golden Promise or, or Maris Otter. But uh, for Black IPA, I think you need a bit of a malt base. Um, visually, it looks like something that if it, it's super crisp and clean, it might not make sense. <laughs> but if you close your eyes then then maybe it does um so you know we generally will will bring in a little bit of something like vienna um we dark malts we are more and more going the cinnamon route with our um black ipa and uh the idea there is you know we want a uh a mouthfeel and we want a uh, attenuation that that we'll use Pilsner for, but um, we don't want roastiness. To us, that's more the Cascadian style and maybe a little more throwback. So, you know, there was a time when IPA was lightening up. We kind of look at that for black IPA too. So um, somewhat lighter, let the hop shine, but get it as black as you possibly can. So if, if there is uh, specialty grains in there, generally it is, again, as a flavor base. So there might be a little bit of, um, say, low color crystal, generally Simpsons. That's one thing. Um, the U.S. hasn't caught up to Europe on roasted grains yet. Yeah. So we're still importing all of that. But, uh, you know, maybe a little bit of caramel to a little bit of low color crystal malt to, again, bridge that gap. Um, but most of that color is either going to come from something dehusked and broadcast over the, the louder just during sparging, so as little flavor as possible, um, or straight up just cinnamon. Sure, sure. Well, let's let's pivot now and talk about hops in black IPA because this is where you know a lot of the uh, now we've laid the base we're going to talk about where some of the magic happens before we do that oh you like wildly aromatic ipas and tropical lagers good thing omega designed thialized yeast for just that reason thialized yeast are a new tool for brewers to bring intense guava and passion fruit aromas out of your malt and hops and wait there's more omega yeast makes yeast to order with a consistent one week lead time ensuring peak freshness and reliability. Also, keep your brewery running smoothly with five-star chemicals. Their cleaning solutions are specifically formulated to meet the unique needs of breweries, ensuring that your equipment stays clean and free of harmful bacteria and contaminants. From cleaning fermenters to kegs, they've got a solution for every step of the brewing process. Use five-star chemicals today and taste the difference in your brews. And ABS Commercial has been a full-service brewery outfitter for over 10 years. They're proud to offer brew houses, tanks, keg washers, and small parts to brewers across the country, as well as equipment for distilling, cider-making, wine-making, and more. They know the ins and outs of the brewing and installation process and can design the perfect setup for you, whether you're just starting out or looking to expand. Contact them today at sales at abs-commercial.com to discuss your customized brewery needs. ABS Commercial. 
we are brewers. So, you know, Mark, hops that work in uh, those lean and pale West Coast or Rocky Mountain IPAs, uh, um, they get into this kind of context with black IPA or dark IPA or Cascadian dark ale or however we want to call it, uh, or Yellowstonian dark ale. Um, you should, that should be a thing. I like it. Yeah. Yellowstonian dark ale. Uh, I guess. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> where, where do you start as you start like building uh, hop blends for these beers? Yeah. Or um, for this beer, it's this beer. It is a beer. So, when we first started developing our black IPA, we were really looking at what was working for double IPA and, and, uh, and straight IPA at the time. And so, um, hops that were new to us, you know, when we, when I opened Uber brew, the last sexy hop I used was cascade. And so by the time we opened Uber brew IPA and hops in general, had changed a lot. Um, so we were super excited to get our hands on some things like Simcoe and Citra. And so we always look at uh, kind of the flavor spider plot on a hop. And we look for either synergies where we can lay um, certain flavors, like say a berry character out of the right Simcoe um, and accentuate that with something like Nelson Salvin. At the time, uh, Nelson was you know, in one or two beers and, and we thought it was neat, but we didn't have any Nelson. So anyway, we look for synergies and either accentuate certain profiles, profiles that we're looking at, um, or we, um, look to round out flavors. And so, um, we utilize, uh, spider plots and lay them on top of each other. And, uh, you know, before we did that digitally, we would pin up, the spider plots that we'd print out or, or make ourselves and just put them on the wall and look for that stuff. So we'd kind of map flavors and aromas based on that. Um, Interesting. And so you will like, like visually composite some very spider. much visually huh. at first. And then, yeah. you know, we can experiment with teas or with other beers. So um, we start off every new to us hop or a hop that we want to revisit with a smash beer and so at uber brew we have the grandmaster smash series and so that's a single malt single hop and those beers have changed over the years as to whether it's a session ipa or a hazy session or a double and um but we'll keep it to one malt one hop and it's a study for us it helps us learn and maybe create those plots that we'll then use visually in a beer um, that we want to learn and, and then execute. So something like alpha force double tap started with the smash series, went into plots and then there's a visual session where everybody sits there and says, Hey, I like this spike of this hop from this beer. What if we layered that into alpha force? So, um, so you are brewing a smash beer and then your team is going and creating their own flavor plots, not simply taking what the hop broker is saying, you know, from it'll the, be both, but okay. yes, but based off of that, those hop studies, that, that smash series, but there again, 
it comes back to malt. And so a malt that we're super excited about that came up through the Grandmaster Smash is Chevalier. And we love that hop as a um, bait, or I'm malt, sorry, that yeah. malt as a base for, for hops. And it's because it has a real um, jammy or um, kind of a, uh, uh, oh, what's the... Uh, What's the jam with all the, the zest in it? A marmalade-like character mm. that we're looking for. Um, and so, you know, that's something exciting to bring that kind of flavor profile, but coming from malt instead of hops to maybe accentuate some citrus on a hop. And so even if it's not the hops that we're plotting, it, it, in the Smash series, new malts can come as part of that smash. And I guess that lets you evaluate how, yeah, some of that mall character plays might change, you know, the way with those hops that you may already know. Absolutely. You can see the effect of that. Yeah. And so what tool does, what tool do you use for your staff? Like, do they just draw it out on some paper? We'll draw it out. And so, you know, you can have just a piece of paper with those profiles Mm -hmm. on it. And when you do sensory, you say, you know, this right. leans citrus or this leans floral. Um, you know, this leans tropical. And, you know, the spider plots, you can go zero to five, say. And so it's intensity. And, um, you know, Wireman does a great job with their malts and, mm-hmm. and spider plots like that. But uh, a lot of hop brokers. And so initially, before we add any of that data, we would rely on hop brokers, spider plots to, to and we still use those and layer ours in. But, um, you know, we're not big enough to where right. we're we're buying our own lots yet. So we oftentimes rely on friends in the industry who are that say, hey, if you can get your hands on this, I know you guys like this in your Simcoe. Um, this Simcoe's real fruity. Go for that. <laughs> this lot that we've got right. is is one that you, yeah, yeah. So um, that's that's how we approach it. And, and uh, you know, I think it pays off. Yeah, so then... You know, as you go through this process, using you know, understanding what these hops are, layering some of these on top of each other. What are some of those individual flavor spikes, those characters that you find in a hop lend themselves well in a dark IPA that might be a little different than uh, you know a typical pale IPA? So it depends on you know if you're using grains to get that or cinnamar. Um, I think if you use Cinnamar, there's an earthiness there. And if you use too much, you can get an ashy character that we don't care for. Um, but I think Cinnamar gives you freedom to play with the hops a little more. There's less opportunity for something to conflict. Um, but when you go roasty, I think, uh, you kind of have to think coffee in some ways. And so we really like, Ethiopian coffee um, because if roasted properly it can have some real berry-like notes. Um, So for instance, if you want a berry-like note and you get the right Simcoe, you can get great berry character. Um, So let's say you want to accentuate a berry note and you really want to lay down on that. So you can get berry notes out of Nelson Salvin and you can get berry notes out of um, things like uh, Hallertau Blanc and so, for instance, I think those three hops together would be an excellent berry accentuated. You know, it's still going to have some of the citrus and depending on 
the lot of hops there might be some diesel or some some dank like characters but uh you know then you look for synergies like maybe mosaic and and galaxy and and i think those types of things can be really nice in a in a black ipa would you have a general uh you know and, and alpha force double tap is an imperial uh, black ipa um you know given that people expect you know roast and some bitterness and some sort of capacity in this dark beer you know how do you balance you know bitterness and how do you shape that bitterness so that um it's there but it's not say rough or excessively aggressive even if it's strong it should always feel smooth and it you know needs to build rather than you know instantly attack how how do you massage that kind of bitterness through your process sometimes mistake <laughs> So we went through okay. this this whole. At least you're honest. Yeah, we went through. I think the industry went through a whole period with hazy, where there were a lot of beers that had excessive hop burn, right. and I think that kind of came from this idea that if you don't use any hops in the kettle except for whirlpool and dry hopping, that there wouldn't be any excessive uh, bitterness or or burn. And I think it gave us the opposite. And so, you know, we kind of had to learn that mistake by by doing that. Um, only going whirlpool and cool pool and dry hop. And, and how come this beer so harsh? How come there's burn? And it's lingering burn that even with age is there. And what we found is that you have to use some hops in the boil. You have to um, give that hop... Uh, those hop chemicals, something to glom onto, or it'll just be like eating a hop pellet raw. And, uh, you know, we learned that mistake and we're that brewery that changes one variable at a time. So it creeps along at a, at a very slow pace. And so there were probably a year and a half or so where we had some beers that had some hop burn. And, you know, we learned that you have to get some, hops hot side to uh make sure that you don't have that problem what is what does that hop side now hot side hopping now look like for you um you're doing you know first word hops uh you know early stuff like you know i imagine a lot of the mid-boil stuff is still not that uh prominent right um, you know what do you what do you do so i think you know we st- very first started doing some mash hopping and, and first word hopping um, in the early 2000s. Uh, yeah. So we did it early 2000s with tumbleweed. So um, far ahead of the curve on those style things. And that was, uh, the Germans were doing yeah. it. And so back then there wasn't, there were papers, but yeah. they were in German. <laughs> and so, you know, sure. with some translating what the Germans discovered and they, they first started using it to kind of, uh, use a Reinhardt, Reinhardt's method of acidifying, um, the mash. And so, uh, you know, if you didn't have acidulated malt and you couldn't add phosphoric or lactic acid, um, they would use hops to, uh, facilitate better runoff and, and, 
not pulling out astringencies with sparging. And what they discovered is that you had hop flavor and, um, and hop aroma that counterintuitively made it through a boil. Hmm. And so they were researching that a little bit. And so we read some of that and started doing it because, you know, it was early 2000s and in the 90s. It's how many hops can you throw out of beer in every way that you possibly can. And, you know, we found that the Germans were right. And so Uberverse kind of always done some um, some first word hopping and some mash hopping. And um, at the time... Samuel Adams did a beer with, I think it was Dogfish Head, called Flowers, and they were putting uh, um, rose petals in brewing liquor. And we were like, well, hops are a flower. Let's <laughs> let's uh, throw a bunch of hops in our hot liquor tank. And, and uh, you know, those were mistakes, but... Uh, <laughs> but you learn from them. And so, yeah, I think, uh, you know, kettle hopping for us or, or hot side hopping for us since the nineties is included first word hopping. We have very hard water here in Billings. And so, um, instead of using acidulated malt, we'll, we'll do some of that to, um, maintain pH balance in our, in our mash. Um, and we find that it, it adds great flavor and aroma. And to your point, we're, we're just starting to learn about thiols and thiol precursors, but uh, we'll continue to experiment and learn on that. But where we're at on the kettle is um, instead of no hops at the beginning of the boil, we we have to use some. Hmm. And uh, we're finding that that kind of eliminates hop burn. Now, they might be small amounts. And to your point, there might not be anything at 40 minutes before the end of the boil, 30, 15. You know, it might come at flame out or in the whirlpool. But uh, to keep hop burn down, we, we found that we need something 60 minutes in the boil or 90 hmm. minutes in the boil. Besides what you're doing, mash hopping and, and first word hopping. Interesting. And, you know, again, you're just trying to build this broad spectrum of, uh, you know, of hop flavor and some of those cooked hop flavors, uh, you know, and aromas are, are pretty positive and help balance out those things. How about uh, whirlpooling? So um, when we designed the brew house for by all means, um, we really wanted to be able to cool pool. And so uh, we've been doing more and more of that and, and we like it. Uh, I wouldn't say that we totally understand it yet, but, uh, <laughs> what do you mean by that? Well, you know, how much of just setting a temperature and doing it at that temperature and how is that translating into what we're tasting and smelling? And so that's what we're learning. Um, so we're doing it. Do we know the outcome yet? We like some of the outcomes. Are we exactly sure what we're doing? No. Um, what has worked and what have you been less excited about? Um, so one thing that's worked is backing off on the amount of hops in the whirlpool. Mm. The other thing that's worked is, you know, we really went after cryo in the whirlpool for a while. And um, at first cryo was powder, at least what we got. And that would kind of float on top right, and you'd right. have to punch it in. So pellets helped a lot. Um, but just backing off a little bit in, mm. the, in the whirlpool and, Still hitting it hard, dry hopping, but backing off a little bit in the whirlpool. Is there now like a, a whirlpool threshold where you're like, this is anything beyond this threshold we know we're not going to get? 
more out of or it's or it's going to push into unpleasant do you have any kind of rules around that or is it hop specific um so we kind of look at it of a pound per barrel and you know i'd say that we're in the we're probably in the we've done everything we've plugged heat exchangers on a lot of collaborations <laughs> sure, we've done sure. <laughs> and uh you know that was well beyond so you know i'd say that Right now, we're probably in the two pounds per barrel whirlpool realm, but, you know, we've done as much as five pounds per barrel whirlpool, and um, that was kind of our thing in Colorado for a long time, is we were plugging yeah. collaborate, our collaborative uh, breweries heat exchangers all the time, and that wasn't too much fun, but we did like some of the product that we got out of it. Two pounds per barrel, probably keeps you in a, a safer place so let's talk about uh, uh dry hopping then and i assume fermentation on a, a black ipa is is just going to be a standard uh you know california ale yeast or do you have anything do you have any more special approaches to it i'm not a california ale yeast no guy. i never yeah. have been really so we discovered um you know with the hard water we have in billings back in montana brewing company in the 90s we switched to London Ale 3 um, a long time ago, and that's been my house yeast ever since. Um, we're pretty excited about some of the Kvike, but uh, for us, it's two yeast strains. We like Ondex, and we like London Ale 3. So you're making clear beer with London Ale 3. Absolutely. Yeah. And you can go, you can make very lager clean beers with london ale three too if and it'll ferment cool so you gotta over pitch and ferment cool but you know you can make a cream ale with london ale three and it tastes just like you used on decks learning something new every day man <laughs> way ahead on this london ale three trend and you're right there when uh, when hazy became uh you know such an in thing yeah and, and it works great for haze but you know we're, we aren't really looking for permanent haze out of yeast. We're looking at that as being a, a malt and a hop hmm. synergy yeah, or lack thereof. Sure, sure. Um, so then dry hopping for black IPA, what's that like for you? So we have kind of tried everything under the sun. We generally like uh, fermentation temperature. For us, London Ale's on the low end, so I'm going to say in the 62 degree Fahrenheit mm. range. Um, so we pitch more than a lot of people probably wow, do. Yeah. Um, but we like to dry hop at fermentation temperature and two days and pull them and do a second dry hop. And uh, so we don't like too much time on the hops hmm. um and we like to be at fermentation temperature sometimes we'll raise temp a little bit um it depends on hops you're using if they tend to be hops like say a mosaic that tends towards hop creep or something sometimes we'll raise temperature there to help push yeah. through some of that that's that's kind of the beauty of cold ipa and and croisoning and spunding is to help speed up some of that creep and so we're really into some of those techniques that like Wayfarer and those guys have come up. So cold IPA is kind of a cool thing we're playing with now. Making more and more of it these days. Yeah. Yeah. Um, they taste good too. Yeah. Sure. Absolutely. 
Um, well, is there anything else to black IPA that, uh, that I have not brought up on this one? Because we've been talking for a good hour here already and I haven't even talked about wheat beer yet. I think the biggest thing is the donut effect. The donut effect. So I think if you use all cryo, there's something missing. There's a hole in your beer. And so you need some of that plant material. It can't all be just concentrated. And so... Um, we like using lots of different hop products, so we've done all cryo beers, but they're missing something. Um, in addition to cryo, any use of, you know, flowable hop products? Not for us. Okay. Uh, I know they're getting better and I know there's some exciting stuff, but you know, uh, hop extracts from the nineties left a bad aroma <laughs> to me and I, I haven't been able to get over it. it it'll yeah. come, but you know, like I said, we're one variable at a time brewery. So we're kind of slow. Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, um, let's switch some gears and talk about American wheat. Um, you know, again, another subject that we don't talk about much here on the podcast and this, you know, beer that you make white noise that you, as you mentioned before, is something that you'd made uh, earlier versions of for, you know, all of your career and has been basically a career long labor of love for you. Um, talk to me about where it started and where it is now. If I'm going to borrow the terms from uh, that popular meme. <laughs> yeah. So for me, it started homebrewing. So about, uh, uh, 91 or so the first two years I homebrewed, I essentially made two recipes, a brown ale and, um, at the time Bavarian style wheat beer. Um, and I still today love Bavarian style, but the market in Montana is for American style wheat beers, whether it be a Vit or, you know, a, a Hefeweizen type, um, they don't necessarily like Belgian or German yeast strains as much here in Montana. So there's kind of two styles of beer you have to make, three if you include IPA. And that's uh, a wheat, an Americanized wheat beer of some sort and Scotch ale and, of course, IPA. But um, so at Montana Brewing Company, we started with an American Hefeweizen. Um, and at the time, Widmer was a big deal but they might've been a big deal for their alt beer and, uh, Widmer Hefeweizen came on and, uh, it was popular here in Montana. And so we wanted to make something that, uh, we thought maybe we could improve on a little bit and, and something that the locals could get excited about. And so, um, you know, that two years of brewing Bavarian style, uh, vice beer, we just adapted and originally we were using, um, uh, I think it was YE 1332 or something along those lines. And, and, uh, very early on went to London ale three and discovered that it was a great wheat beer yeast. Um, and you could get lots of different flavors. And if you under pitch that yeast, and uh, stress it a little bit, you can get some Bavarian vice beer type character out of it if you want to. Um, very mild, but so it, maybe our wheat beers early on were kind of a hybrid. Uh, now we've gone clean, so we ferment cool, um, over pitch. In a lot of ways, it's maybe more like a wheat lager or something hmm. um, from a flavor standpoint. 
obviously not genetically, but yeah. So, um, meant to be a thirst quencher. Um, I'm really big on Michael Jackson's beer for occasion. And uh, whenever we brew something, we start with the intent, you know, is it a thirst quencher? Is it a light, medium, dark, or hoppy sociable beer? Is it, uh, an aperitif? Is it a digestif? Is it a party greeting? Is it a restorative? And, um, you know, beer can be made for all of those occasions. And so that's the first part of a recipe. So Montanans are very active and we think thirst quenchers are important. And I think that's why American versions of wheat beer are so popular here in Montana is they're looking for those thirst quenchers for their active lifestyle. Interesting. And so, so then walk me through it. You know, what, what, when you, as you build this beer, there needs to be a thirst quencher, um, you know, how do you design it to be that way? So, um, we again, start with malts. Yep. Um, it's a wee beer. It's going to have some wheat malt in what's it. What's a little bit counterintuitive is we maybe use a little less wheat malt than say you would in a Bavarian style Hefeweizen. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, so if we're in the 40% wheat range, uh, so 40% wheat, 60% barley, that's more of what we do. And in Bavarian, it would be flip-flopped. Um, we look for high attenuation. So, you know, at, at Uber Brew, we're single step infusion mashes. So we're going low 149. Um, no ability to do any upward infusion or anything. So there's no protein rest or, and then move up to sacrification temperature. It's just a low sacrification temperature. Yeah. And so dry is what we're looking for. Um, in almost every other way, it would be a traditional wheat beer. So low IBU, um, generally speaking, it's going to use uh, noble type varieties, although we really like Liberty. That might be a problem in years to come because nobody mm. else really uses Liberty. Yeah. But we think it's the closest to, say, middle fruit of the uh, haploid sisters of U.S. You know, we've used everything in the past. We've used... Uh, German hops, we've used North American hops, but Liberty's floral, noble, but it's got a little more lemony-like character to it that we really like. Hmm. So simple beer, uh, you can't hide behind it, so you, everything's got to be clean, everything's got to be well executed, but uh, you know, hopefully it's one that you can quench that thirst and you get done with the ride or run or mowing the lawn or chasing the kids around, whatever it is that you need a thirst quencher for. Yeah. That's what we're making it for. Where's the line then between, uh, you know, more European, is, is it this, uh, your wheat beers and this American, is it just, you know, this cleaner, lower fruit character, you know, less of that kind of, you know, obviously almost no, none of that clove or banana character that might come out of a, you know, Bavarian style vice beer. Um, you know, how do you, where do you, where are those lines for you and how do you describe, you know, how that should taste? I think, you know, for malt, we're looking for more continental just the type. faintest of the banana character, yeah. but just very, very faint. And that's kind of, we pitch less London Ale 3 in this beer than any other beer we, we make um, with that yeast strain. But uh, again, I think it starts with grain. We're looking for grassiness or more continental hmm. European style, um, you know. So this used to be all 
Weyermann pills. And now we're using Montana craft malt as the base malts. And, uh, it's, it's got a real grassy note too. So that plays well with the hops for the yeast. Like you say, we'll stress it a little bit, um, and try and coax a little bit of isoamyl acetate out of it, a little bit of banana, but, uh, not, not too much. Um, I think when you're looking for a thirst quencher, these have an edge on some of the Bavarian or Belgian style and that some of those esters and some of those, um, fruity characters, or, you know, if you get into clove with Belgian, they can be a bit cloying and a little sweeter. And so it's not as quenching and we're looking for quenching. So high attenuation and not too much yeast care. Where, uh, where does it finish in terms of gravity? Uh, so we like it to finish below two degrees Play-Doh and, uh, you know, that's sometimes coaxing the yeast, uh, you know, originally London Ale 3 was a high flocculating strain. It's kind of changed a little bit over the years. They talk about it being medium and medium low now, but um, it used to be one of those that you used to have to kind of fluff and, and try and keep in solution so that you could uh, achieve a diacetyl rest or something like that. You know, mm -hmm. it wasn't as bad as, say, like... Um, like Fuller's ESB or something that was so flocculent that it's almost impossible to do a diacetyl rest. But, yeah. but it was a close second when we first started using mm. it. It adapts, I'd say, to a cylindroconical fermenter in about two generations. And so we almost always, uh, when we're doing a new pitch, we do it on white noise. And so it hasn't quite adapted to the cylindroconical yet and maybe... Um, it acts a little different, and I think that's mm. why you get a little bit of that banana too. So you then use white noise, you know, to you know grow grow up going. more of the yeast that you will then kick into these other beers that you also absolutely. Well, smart production strategy. Talk to me about uh, the wheat malt component of this. Obviously, that's uh, that's an important piece of uh, of a wheat beer. Yeah, so that just changed recently. Within the last three years, we uh, went from Wireman white wheat um, to uh, Gallatin Valley uh, maltings, white wheat malts. And, uh, you know, we started using some of their base malts first. And whenever uh, whenever they come out with something clearly new. clearly didn't hurt its medal winning. Right. Yeah, because you won silver in 21 and then uh, gold in 2022. It took a lot of using those malts for by all means mm -hmm. um before we said let's go ahead and try because that's a it. bold thing to take this you know consistently metal winning beer and say we're just going to change you know the wheat malt in a in our metal winning wheat beer so some of what helped us with that was contract brewing and so when we were working with sleeping giant in denver um you know they were using some different uh malts in their silo than what we have and you know they would use a hammer mill and they would do a filter press. And we had a really hard time telling the difference between our beers in blind sensory, um, and what we were making here in Billings. And so that got us thinking about, you know, they were using some malt Europe, uh, pills and malt grown here in Montana. And so that got us thinking about, okay, let's start looking at some of the Montana malts. 
and we got to play with them at by all means and we liked what we saw so we started applying those to uber brew recipes we were doing that a little bit with sleeping giant but i mean here in our own house we started applying them to uber brew recipes and we liked the results and you know I think the only way we knew in Century is if we knew a little something going in. Um, but if we had to pick, we probably couldn't accu accurately pick uh, the difference between wiremen and what we were using here in Montana. So we've made the conversion for some of those beers. That's uh, something. And, and so, you know, the idea is to keep the flavor the same. Absolutely. You know, the idea is not to like find something more or less flavorful. It's to to try to match it exactly, and uh, and you're there. Especially with a flagship like that, yeah. Yeah, and I like that idea that that grassiness, uh, you know, that that's that malt character that seems to work, you know, and and kind of obviously because it's there's not a ton of hops in this kind of in this beer. No. It's, uh You know, and so some of that character then comes from the malt itself. Yeah. So earlier iteration so like uh, whitetail weed at montana brewing company um, very similar beer different malts but uh different hops back then too we were using centennial a lot and we'd get this real um, almost like strawberry yogurt like character um, and forever we thought that that was coming out of london ale 3 somehow and we finally figured out that it was uh centennial and uh, Strawberry the way yogurt. we were using it yeah huh. yeah Care careful some people may want to make more <laughs> strawberry yogurt beers now right <laughs> so you know then in terms of fermentation you mentioned that uh you know this one is under pitch but then you know also still kind of you know a cool fermentation with london ale three you know making an american wheat beer with london ale three uh it's just you know, fascinating to see how you do it. Anything else that uh, any of the other, you know, you know, kind of things you pay attention to through this fermentation process to, uh, to get it, to get that kind of character that you want in the wheat beer? Um, you know, we don't go too heavy on the, the haze on this and there, there's a little bit of yeast haze. So one of the biggest things that we struggled with contract brewing was, um, finishing this beer it was almost always more clear than what we were looking for and so we would really work with you know at the time fort collins brewing and with sleeping giant on centrifugation and theoretically we knew that you could get a nice stable haze with centrifugation but we didn't have our own centrifuge so we couldn't exactly tell anybody how to accomplish that and now we have it here it by all means and and we get to play with it every day and fridays are centrifugation day so kyler's centrifuging now yeah but we're excited about it because we like it for clear beers and we like it for hazy beers and so we're finally understanding white noise um with centrifugation and you know generally speaking it's about um you know the bowl speed and the throughput speed and so you can uh speed up the bowl and slow down the throughput for a clear beer and you can do the opposite for a hazy beer and that uh we're playing with white noise on that and getting it where we want it uh i think we'd like to turn the beer a little faster than what we're doing but uh you know you used to hear the stories about woodmer and it being eight days uh, from brew kettle to 
to packaging and I don't know that we'll do it with white noise, but we'd like to play with that idea. So if I'm reading between the lines, you, you think the centrifugation is, is probably creating a little more of a stable haziness in the beer then? And, you know, and it's very a light, little light less haze. haze. Okay. Yeah, I think. But it's ultimately. not going to drop clear now. It doesn't settle in the keg if the keg set around. Even if it sits in the fermenter or the packaging tank longer, it it's a more stable haze, to your point. It doesn't settle out. We used to play around with keeping kegs upside down and um, things like that, you know. But sometimes... But that centrifuge can pull out some of those larger particles that might drag, pull the, uh, absolutely. the haze out of there, then uh, you know, it does tend to... Uh, keep a little bit more of that in a consistent way and i can't tell you how many times that beer has been in a metal round but has said not hazian <laughs> so sure sure uh you know working on that aspect of it and and you know you get to choose if you want the stewards to rouse or pour gently and you know we would print our own labels in big red letters on a white background that says rouse vigorously or something in hopes that we would and we don't have to do that anymore so fair enough fair enough well mark is there are there any other brewing subjects that uh you know things that you guys have been playing around with and learning from uh experimenting with that uh, uh you know that have you found either counterintuitive interesting or that have kind of sparked some additional lines of inquiry for you well we're Loving playing with Kvike. Um, so, you know, we play with the Farmhouse series with, with by all means. And so we think of Farmhouse as not necessarily being Belgian. Um, you know, there are farmhouses. Plenty of making, farms over here right, in Montana. Making great beer all over the world. Yeah, and so yeah. we like this idea of some of the, the Norse farmhouse type beers yeah. and, and maybe playing with hybrids and, and coming up with new ideas based on that. Um, What's a Montana farmhouse beer look like? So, you know, for us, we think about it as what do you have readily available? And to a brewer in the modern world, do you have anything available to you? And so we like playing with stuff like Bloody Butcher Corn and um, you know, some of the Carolina rise and, and, uh, so it kind of starts with a, an interesting malt from an interesting maltster, uh, like Riverbend or Gallatin Valley mm -hmm. or, and then, uh, playing with those yeasts and, and understanding them more. And so we really like Sigmund Voss. Uh, we really like Lutra and, um, you know, we like this idea of kvike rings and maybe those yeast being the original dry yeast. Um, so that's fun. Uh, we'll do a few of those every year. We, of course, like wood. Um, you know, when we got to go to California and and play cornhole at at, uh, at uh, Lenny Colado, um, we hit it off with those guys and they sent us some barrels as a, a housewarming gift for this. And so love wine barrels. Um, those are the things we're playing with and having fun with, but, uh, I love Pilsner. Sure. Sure. Uh, you've got some side pull taps right here in the, uh, by all means tap room. And so, you know, 
we brew as many pilsners as we can yeah. throughout the year and we finally did a german one and we've got a lot to learn but uh it's fun learning for sure uh in the big picture what uh, what do you hope to accomplish with by all means and with uber brew you know what uh what's next in your career and where do you hope all of this goes you've been in this brewing game for a really long time now you've watched it go through lots of changes you know you have always taken a progressive and embracing approach to the new things coming along in the brewing world you know for a brewer that was you know brewing in the mid 90s you could have easily hated on on hazy ipa and yet love them you like you love them and you try to figure them out and you try to you know how to figure out how to make them better or make them your own you know and so you've always taken that kind of you know progressive approach to these things what what's next what 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 do you hope for these brands to become and uh you know and what's the big picture goal here so to keep experimenting and and doing what we love and have the opportunity to do it and that's you know the right business model but a market that is accepting and wanting those things um but for us it is probably the collaborative part and you know i think covid nixed some of that and i think the industry needs to get back to it i know that's what i miss most i know that's what i've enjoyed the most over the years because i think the best way to learn is for people to talk and collaborate and uh you know montana especially billings montana can be a bit of an island and so it's really cool to get out and work with other uh, brewers that are sharing those same visions and goals. And I think that's the best way to learn, whether it's what you want to do or what you might not want to do. But that's what this industry was created on. And I think if it's going to keep moving forward, we need to get back to that. We're all in it together. We're all working on making it something bigger than it is together. And so I hope to do some collaborations soon. Well, thank you for sharing your thoughts you know, on brewing with this broader podcast, uh, collaborative uh, brewing world that we are a part of. Certainly appreciate uh, you being a part of it too. G&D Chillers has set the standard on quality, service, and reliability with 24-7 service and support. Carry Firm Cap Eco. Uh, check it out from BSG. Try Old Orchard's flavored craft juice concentrate blends in your next craft beverage. AccuBrew gives you unprecedented insight into the fermentation process. ProBrew's rotary can fillers reduced waste and produce higher quality packaged beer. RMS roller grinder mills unlock the full potential of your grain. Omega's stylized yeasts bring intensive guava and passion fruit aromas out of your malt and hops. Keep your brewery running smoothly with five-star chemicals. ABS Commercial is your full-service brewery outfitter. If you enjoyed this podcast and any others, go to beerandbrewing.com, click on that subscribe button, and please, please, please you know, support all of our forays here into media so we can continue bringing this podcast and all of our other media and publications to you. Uh, if you want to you know, come up and check out, by all means, and Uber Brew here in Billings and want to plan a trip around it, go to visitbillings.com and start planning your trip there. Mark, if people want to learn more about By All Means and about Uber Brew, where do they learn more about you all? Uh, you can go to our web pages, um, 
you can reach out to me direct. Uh, I'm Mark at byallmeans.beer. Um, if you want the long tour when you come see us, ask for me. I'll talk your socks off. It's uh, It's been fun to finally get up here after all these years and after talking to you about Bruin for, for so much time. Um, greatly appreciate you making some time for me this morning and I'm um, looking forward to, to hanging about a, out a bit more while I'm up here in Billings. Cheers, Mark. Cheers. Thank you, Jamie. You are definitely our lifeline to what goes on in the industry here on the island and we really appreciate it. Well, I, I appreciate that too. Cheers. Cheers. This podcast has been brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those who love to make and drink great beer. To learn more or to subscribe, visit beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew.